The following message is by Pastor Brandon Dyer of Windsor Christian Fellowship. For more information on our church, visit www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. Father, we thank you for, again, the opportunity to come here this morning. We're privileged to be called your own. Thank you for sending Christ. Christ, we thank you for submitting to the Father's plan. Thank you for laying aside your privileges as God to come and to be made in the likeness of man, become a servant, to submit yourself to death on the cross. Pray. Lord, that you will be in our sermon this morning, in this passage, reveal it to the hearts and minds of those who are yours here in this place. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's fun to learn different facts about different states uh, in America. You go to all these different states, and they all have their own different particular things about them. Each state has their state bird, right? They all have their state tree. They all have their different things that are particular to that state. Uh, but one of the probably my more favorite things are the state flags. Every state in America has their own particular flag. Most of you can probably think in your mind what the state of Maine, what their flag looks like. If you're not from around here, you can probably think about what your flag is from whatever state you're from. And I may be a little bit biased uh, being from there, but of all the state flags that I've seen, my favorite is easily Rhode Island's. The, the flag is white. And it has an anchor right in the middle, has stars around the anchor. But underneath the anchor is one word. Does anybody know what that word is? It's the word hope. So it's just this white flag, anchor, stars, and the word hope underneath. The word hope is powerful. And really when you think about it, hope is really one of those main drivers in all of our lives. It's motivational, right? It, it pushes us toward the goals that we may have. But hope is also something that gets us through difficult times as well. When we're going through something tough with people or some kind of circumstance in our life, we look for something that could give us hope. We grab at anything possible that could just give us that, what we often call a, a glimmer of hope. We just want that glimmer of hope to get through whatever difficulty that we're trying to get through. Our current president ran in 2008 with a powerful slogan of hope and change. And regardless of what you think about the president, that was a powerful slogan. Hope and change. Because if there's anything that people are grasping for, if there's anything that people want, it is hope. In our fallen sin natures, we are constantly grabbing after anything, just something to give us a glimmer of hope. But what is always revealing about people is what they place their hope in. Each one of us has, we have different lives, different circumstances, different people coming into our lives. But it's always revealing about us what we place our hope in, even just in the course of normal life. Things can be going completely fine. But what is it that people that you know or you yourself, what do you put your hope in? Some people put their hope in their kids, hoping that they will do better, hoping that they will succeed in areas where we have failed. Some people put their hope in money, 
the hope of getting out of debt and into the black, the hope of having enough money to be able to buy a new car or a toy or a house. So we work hard to attain as much money as we can, pull in as much as we can in order to buy whatever it is that we think gives us some kind of hope, something that represents at least our hope. Some people, some hope in other people. They think if I can only get married, I will have somebody that I can finally put my hope in, somebody that I can finally put my hope and trust in, somebody who won't fail me, forgetting that wherever humans are involved, there is always going to be some kind of failure. But what you eventually find out through life is that you're constantly disappointed by putting your faith in all of these different things because people and money and material possessions that we want to put our hope in always, always, always fail us. They always betray us. And so if none of those things provide the hope that we need, we all have this ache, something to give us hope. We all want it. Well, where should that hope be? And Christians, I think, know the answer. Whenever you ask a question in a children's Sunday school class, it's all, the answer is always Jesus, right? Well, ask any kind of question. Jesus is just kind of the sheepest Jesus. And so we kind of always want to react that way. Well, the answer is Jesus, right? Our hope should be Jesus. Absolutely. Hoping in Jesus is the right answer. That is the only place that anybody is ever going to find any kind of real, genuine, true hope. What is your hope in this life? It's got to be Jesus. What is your hope in your death? It's got to be Jesus. I've mentioned it before, but I love the old catechism that asked this question. And actually, some of them have been printed out and put on the back table. But the question is this, what is your only hope in life and in death? That's a great question. I want to start witnessing to somebody, asking that question. What is your only hope in life and in death? And the answer is this, according to the catechism, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you feel that in your bones? Is that where your hope is? Do you feel that deep within you, that your hope in life and in death is in Christ? That your hope is not in money, that your hope is not in stuff or in people, but it's in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Is that what you're hoping in, hoping in? And as we will see in our passage this morning, this is exactly where our hope as Gentiles must be. It has to be in Jesus. I use the word Gentiles. My understanding here is that most all of us would be considered Gentiles. We would all probably be non-Jews. And do you realize that the Bible even in the Old Testament, speaks to the fact that non-Jews would one day hope in Jesus. We're going to see that in our passage this morning, but it's also stated elsewhere. Paul quotes from the Old Testament in Isaiah. He says this, The root of Jesse will appear, that's Jesus, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, still Jesus, the Gentiles will hope in him. So we have this time of year, right? Advent, and of course Christ was Jewish, he came as a Jew, he's a Jewish Messiah. They certainly rejected him, and here we are now. Gospel has been opened to the Gentiles here in the New Covenant. We are able to, whether whatever nation, tribe, or tongue you're a part of, you can come and you can trust in Jesus. He can be your hope. But Christianity is a hopeful religion because we, have, we hope in a Savior who was long foretold and long promised and who came to this earth and died on the cross and rose again and he established his kingdom that he has made us a part of, that he has included Gentiles in. So the only hope for Gentiles is in the Lord Jesus who is risen and is now reigning. So we have this glorious hope you have a glorious hope. And that's what we're going to be looking at a lot this morning. Now, even as Gentiles, even as to, to those whom he did not originally necessarily come to, he 
did come and he opened it to us and now we have glorious hope in him. But the terrible side of it is that as we've been seeing even in Matthew 12 that the Pharisees and the Gentiles, or excuse me, the Pharisees and many of the Jews were beginning to reject him. You remember last week we saw that they even had originally begun to try to plod and to think about how they could destroy Christ. I think I told you about the time that I spoke with a rabbi. It, it was totally unexpected. I was on a motorcycle in Rhode Island, driving on the road, and I saw this rabbi on the side of the road. I kept driving. I was, I was like, well, I should probably turn around and go talk to him. So I turned around and uh, parked next to him, had a helmet on for once. And so pulling it off, and he's like, are you a Jew? And I hadn't quite got it. He's probably pretty disappointed. Um, but anyway, he's like, are you a Jew? And I got my helmet off. But anyway, I got it off, started talking to him. When we were talking, I, I just asked him straight out, what do you think about Jesus? Because, of course, on, on the Christian side, we, we think everything of Jesus, right? Jesus is our all. He is our hope, truly. And so when I was asking him, he simply replied this way. He said, he was a good guy. He was a good guy. This, to me, resembles exactly what John says in his gospel. Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. But compare that rabbi's response with the way that you think and the way that you feel toward Jesus. Is Jesus to you simply a good guy? Or is Jesus to you the, the supreme of the universe? There's, there's a massive difference. He's a good guy and he is the one by whom all things consist in heaven and on earth. There's a huge difference there. He is not merely a good guy to us. He is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. He is, he is our hope. And he is not just one of our hopes. He's not just one of the things that we cling to. He is our only Hope. Oftentimes when we use the word hope, we use it in our everyday sentences. Well, I hope this job really works out. Or I hope this person likes me. Or I hope that things turn around for so-and-so. We often use it in a way that suggests that we're, we're not quite sure how things are going to work out. So we hope that it pans out okay. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it references a confident expectation. That we have a hope. But that it's, it's nothing to waver over. That this hope is secure. That this hope is anchored right in Christ. There's nothing to hesitate about. We have a hope because it is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We have this confident expectation because it's in our eternal Lord. In last week's sermon, we saw that the Jews were uh, being held in bondage to certain rules and regulations. You remember that the disciples were walking through those grain fields and they were picking out heads of grain and eating them. The Pharisees see that they're doing this and they say, hey, hey, Jesus, don't you see what your disciples are doing? Don't you see that they are breaking the Sabbath? And of course, Jesus responds well to them. But you can imagine, again, the, 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 com the compilation of law and, and expectation and traditions and rules that were being compounded onto these people. You remember in the next little segment that Jesus goes and he uh, is asked by the Pharisees, is it right to heal a man on the Sabbath? And so this man with the withered hand, Jesus calls him forth and says, basically, reach out your hand. And this man just goes ahead and reach out his hand. And he heals him right on the Sabbath day. And of course, from there, the Pharisees and the scribes, they leave and they go ahead and determine how they are going to kill this Jesus. But we brought that passage into the broader context, if you remember, within Matthew chapter 11, where we saw that Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. All you Jews who are shackled and burdened, come to me and you will find rest. Can you imagine living in this kind of a way? 
We can't walk to the fields and just grab a few heads of wheat and eat it without people looking saying, lawbreaker. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. But by extension, we're going to see this broaden out here, funnel out toward the Gentiles. And we see this mainly through a large quotation from the Old Testament that Matthew uses. Look at Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So again, you remember that last week, Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees were fired up about it. They leave the synagogue. They go and determine how they could get rid of Jesus, how they could destroy him. But we all know here, and we even reflected on it for a minute last week, the Ten Commandments. Where, where in that original command, Moses, well, God, through Moses, said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So you, to keep the Sabbath day, you just keep it holy. Do you think that plotting to kill a man on the Sabbath day was a holy activity for the Pharisees to do on the Sabbath? No. The very law they were trying to enforce upon Jesus and to enforce upon his disciples were the very law, was the very law that they were breaking in their unholy work of conspiring against Jesus. Jesus had dealt with them swiftly. He dealt with them uh, in a quick manner. He had obvious power from on high. They could not negate what Jesus was doing, although they would certainly try even later within this chapter. We'll see in the coming weeks. But realizing that they would not be able to stop him from doing his mighty works, they, their only recourse, their only response, the only thing that they thought they could do is destroy him. They knew they couldn't stop him, so they would destroy him. Like the atheist who spends his life trying to get rid of and destroy the very God whom he argues doesn't even exist, the Pharisees would spend their time trying to get rid of and to destroy the very God-man whom they would not accept as their Messiah. So they're conspiring against him. Jesus goes ahead and he leaves that area. Many people actually end up following after Jesus. There are many people who are still in need of healing. So they go ahead and follow after him where he goes. So Jesus heals them. But what's interesting is he tells them not to make him known. Don't make me known. So they follow him. He heals them. And he says, don't tell anybody. Don't tell people what I have done for you. And this isn't the first time that we've seen this. But doesn't it confuse you that as you read through the Gospels that Jesus even says this in the first place? If you look at our church covenant, it's on the back. But it has this this statement in there that says that one of the things that we desire as a church body is to know Christ and to make Him known. This is what we strive for. We want to know Jesus and we want to make Him known. We want to tell other people about Jesus. But Jesus was telling these people not to make Him known. And the reason was because of the popularity. The popularity would slow Jesus down. If all of these people were constantly flocking after Jesus, Jesus would have to slow down, and he wouldn't be able to do the things that he thought were necessary in that moment. So Jesus knew that his time was short. He wasn't going to have years upon years upon years to work and to do miracles and to heal. He needed to use his time well for teaching and explaining to his disciples. And the more people that surrounded him, the more he was 
slowed down. So the Pharisees are conspiring against Jesus. The people were pursuing Jesus to be healed. And Jesus tells them not to make him known. And then Matthew, what he does is he places this Old Testament quotation. Some of you, it might be more particular in your Bibles where you can see that it's designated as an Old Testament quotation. Um, Others aren't as clear. But it is. It's from the Old Testament. It's from the book of Isaiah. And Matthew goes ahead and he places this here. And it's very important that he does this because Matthew's gospel is very much angled toward a Jewish audience. What Matthew is doing throughout the book of, 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 of Matthew, of the Gospel of Matthew, is not only that he's showing us who our king is, but he's showing the Jews who their Messiah is, who this Messiah king would be. So his whole Gospel is really funneled at them in a lot of ways, trying to make the point to the Jews, Jesus has come, and Jesus is the Messiah. So he's making this case. He is the one that they had long awaited for. And so as he... Uh, uses their Old Testament, he uses his Old Testament, the Old Testament, to prove that Jesus is exactly who he said that he is. But look in verse 18. Isaiah, which was written hundreds of years before Matthew's Gospel, says this. Behold my servant. So we'll just look at those three words for a minute. Behold my servant. So the word behold, the Bible uses it a lot. We don't use it a lot in our language. But it basically means stop. Look. Take, take a, a second and look. Here, here he is. Look at him. Behold him. Now, now, who is he? Who is this servant that he's talking about? According to Isaiah, whoever this servant is, he's chosen. He's beloved. He has the Spirit of God upon him. So whoever this servant is, he is exceedingly important to God. So when Isaiah wrote this passage, the readers would have hopefully read it and understood how special the servant would to be. And as Matthew quotes it here, we see that he is very clearly indicating that Jesus is this servant that Isaiah speaks of. Oftentimes we think of Jesus in Isaiah, the famous passages, right? In Isaiah 53, of Jesus being the the suffering servant. That he had come, he was that lamb that was led to the slaughter. A couple weeks ago we even looked at Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says that Christ took on the form of a servant. Jesus Christ is God's chosen servant. He submitted himself to the plan of the Father. He didn't have to. He was co-eternal. He was co-equal with the Father before the glory of God and the good of man. He laid aside those privileges that he had. He took on the form of a servant. He was made in likeness of man and he submitted himself to the death. This servant was chosen by God the Father. He was the beloved son of God. He was the one in whom God was well pleased. And he even had God's very spirit resting upon him. Who else could this be but Jesus? You can hear, even hear the echo from Matthew chapter 3. When we walk through Matthew 3 and the, and the baptism of Jesus. You remember that out of heaven the voice spoke saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then the spirit of God descended upon Jesus there. There is no doubt who this servant is. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who has come as Yahweh's servant to do Yahweh's will. And according to verse 19, he would proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Proclaim justice to the Gentiles. What this essentially is meaning that this servant would bring God's good upon the Gentiles. God had worked almost explicitly with the Jews throughout the New Testament for many years under the Old Covenant, but a new covenant was being inaugurated where God would not only work with the Jews, but it would be spread out and opened to the Gentiles, to the nations. And as we reflect on this Old Testament quotation, 
we see that God intended from way back in the Old Testament to work with the Gentiles. That he sent this servant who would come and bring about God's good to the Gentiles. As verse 21 says, that in the name of the servant of this servant of the Gentiles, Gentiles like you and me, we would hope in this servant. So working with us as Gentiles has always been a part of God's plan. We see the Jews, the Pharisees in particular, starting to really reject Jesus as the Messiah. And it's not like Jesus says, well, okay, I guess if you guys don't want anything to do with me, I'll go ahead and begin working with the Gentiles. No, this was always a part of God's plan to bring into his family those who were from every single nation, tribe, and tongue, which should be incredibly motivational in our evangelism. We have been tasked to preach the gospel to the Gentiles about this servant, which culminates at the end of the book of Matthew in Matthew 28, where he says to go and make disciples of all nations. But look again at the end of verse 19. We begin to get more of a picture of who this chosen, beloved servant is. Verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So he is our meek and humble servant. He will not quarrel. He will not cry aloud in the streets, nor will anyone hear his voice there, bringing us back to the fact that Jesus had told the crowds to not speak of him. But the first part of verse 19 is particularly interesting. This servant, Jesus, he would not quarrel. He would not cry out. He was not going to fight these Pharisees. We never see him getting into the faces of the Pharisees and scribes and getting angry right to their face. He deals with them plainly and honestly, but he does not fight with them or even cry out. Even when he's standing trial and they're criticizing and they're slapping him and they're spitting on him and all of that stuff, Jesus never once fights his accusers. He's genuinely and truly humble. He is meek and lowly of heart, even to those who are most bitter toward him. But his gentleness and humility would also be expressed to those who were bruised and burnt out with a reference there in verse 20 to bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. He would be gentle toward those who were bruised. He would be gentle to those who were smoldering. A reed was a plant that grew near water. They actually would use these reeds in order to measure and to do different things with. But in this verse, he mentions not reeds that are useful, but reeds that are bruised. Reeds that are really no longer good for anything. Bruised reeds are those people who have been bruised and battered by sin and they know it. That they feel the weakness. That they feel the burden and they feel the insecurities of their own blemishes. That they know that they are burdened by sin. They're bruised by it. A bruised reed knows he is bruised and knows that he is no longer useful as a measuring stick or for any other thing and is ready for the compost pile. But is this not an incredible illustration for all of us? That bruised and battered by sin throughout our lives, we all have been, but what an incredible hope it is to realize that Jesus has not come to break us. Jesus doesn't come and take hold of us and snap us and throw us into the compost pile like we deserve. Instead, he came to heal us like we don't deserve. We often get tempted to think 
That because we have sinned and because we have failed, that God is surely going to come after us. That God is surely going to break us over our sin. But Jesus Christ came and instead of you and me being broken, Jesus himself was broken on our behalf. God broke his only son for us so that we wouldn't have to be broken. What an incredible thought that this perfect servant, that this perfect Christ came and he was broken on behalf of all the bruised reeds like you and me here in this place. That you and I deserve to be broken and thrown into the fire. But Jesus himself was broken on our behalf. Also mentioned our smoldering wicks. My wife enjoys burning candles in our home and I appreciate them as well. But the part that I absolutely cannot stand is when the candle is blown out. It's just a horrible smell. It's stomach churning. So somebody can blow this out for me after the service. But if you look at a candle after it's been blown out, underneath all that billowing smoke, if you look at the wick, there's still a little bit of orange there. There's still a little bit of yellow light there. That's a, that's a smoldering wick. I think what he's referencing here with a smoldering wick are those who are growing weary. Those who are growing weary or have grown weary in their faith. That they once were a candle brightly burning, but that there is very little light left. There's no doubt in my mind this morning that among us, there are those who would feel as though they're a smoldering wick. That they're no longer burning brightly. That is you, listen to the words of John Piper. The word of the Lord for you this morning is that Jesus does not quench the little spark of spiritual life left in you. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him, gentle for now. As long as this life lasts, the atmosphere of Jesus is all oxygen. The faintest spark of spiritual life will glow and grow when it comes into contact with Jesus. Jesus did not come to snuff out your struggling flicker, but to fan it carefully into a torch for his glory. If you are a smoldering wick, look to Christ. Come into contact with Christ through the reading of the word, through prayer, and be ignited once again into a torch. The air all around Jesus is oxygen. It lends itself to keeping a candle burning brightly. There is never a time where the atmosphere of Jesus is suffocating. Contact with him will only cause you to burn brightly. Again, what an incredibly compassionate servant that we have. That he has not come to break the bruised or to quench those who are flickering. He has come to have compassion upon you and to restore what was once strong and what was once bright. Jesus has come to give hope to the Gentiles. So come to him. Look again at verse 21. Very succinctly stated again what we've been has been the theme throughout. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. As Jesus will later say in the book of Matthew, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And included in that many are not only Jews, but Gentiles as well. The suffering servant would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. He would be lifted high upon the cross and he would give himself as that ransom for many to bear our sin. In the name of Jesus Christ, the servant of God, the Gentiles will find and they will have their eternal hope. Those who were without any kind of hope are now called to hope in Jesus. As Matthew writes these verses and these chapters, it's not as though he's watching what Jesus is doing and just kind of copying it as he goes. He's writing this after the fact. He's writing this after the fact of Jesus dying and rising again and ascending into heaven. So this is all post. He knows what happens. He knows how all of this goes down and how it 
eventually ends. So he uses this passage from Isaiah to show us Christ. To show that the Gentiles, as a result of all that Jesus has done, that the the Gentiles would now hope in him. That the Gentiles would now soon be brought under the conviction of sin and place their hope in this humble yet exalted servant of God. My friend, is that you? Have you trusted in this servant? Is your hope in the name of Jesus? Have you trusted in Christ? You can search through all other religions and you will not come across a hope like that that is found in Christ. According to this Old Testament quotation, Jesus is the chosen, the beloved, the spirit and anointed one. The one who would come and lay aside all of those privileges on behalf of not only those who were his people, but for Gentiles like you and me. And like our incredible Lord, we have been loved and chosen and been given the Spirit of God. That we, like Paul says, we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once afar off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is totally undeserved. This is all of grace that Jesus would come to earth and live a perfect life and to shed his blood for our sins and to be raised in victory over sin and death and to pass us from judgment to life. What an incredible hope that we have as Gentiles in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you. Thank you that you have not come break the bruised reeds or to quench the smoldering wicks but that you have come to heal that you have come to fan into a flame what once burned and Lord we pray that you'll do that in our midst this morning those who are feeling the weight of their sin and feeling the fact that they are not burning brightly that you will do this for them Thank you for your word. Again, we pray that you'll open it to our hearts and minds. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Brandon Dyer, pastor of Windsor Christian Fellowship in Windsor, Maine. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge them or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our church online at www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. There, you'll find sermons and other information about our church. If you have a need or would like further information, call 242-0126 or email us at wcfmaine at gmail.com. Our mailing address is Windsor Christian Fellowship, 11 Reed Road, Windsor, Maine, 04363. Windsor Christian Fellowship exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the evangelization of unbelievers and the edification of believers so that all might be glad in God.